0: I'm going to ask you to turn to the very beginning of the book of Leviticus. We're going to read a few verses from chapter 1, a few verses from chapter 2, and then just a few verses from chapter 3. The book of Leviticus, as you've heard, our good friend and elder Ernie Adicott is going to be taking us through a series of sermons, series of messages on how some of these practices in the old the old time of of Moses and the deliverance from Egypt and the setting up of the nation of Israel and the setting up of all of these rituals and ceremonies, how these things can mean something to us today. And I, for one, am looking forward to that. And this is the first in that series. So turn with me then, Leviticus chapter 1. We're going to look at the first nine verses. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord... And then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then just skip across to chapter 2 and look at the first three verses. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. They are to pour olive oil on it and put incense on it and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all of the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. And then finally to chapter 3 and the first five verses. If your offering is a fellowship offering, and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present before the Lord an animal without defect. You are to lay your hand on the head of your, of your offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord, the internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is lying on the burning wood. It is a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord." Lord, take your word, we pray, in just a moment. Through your servant, make your word speak to us. This we pray in Jesus' sake. Amen.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's a great privilege for me to open this book of Leviticus. I was uh, uh, a little surprised when Nick asked me to uh, take this series, but I find it a real joy to prepare. Leviticus is the book of the Levites. Effectively, it's the priest's manual, uh, a manual of instruction to help the priests do their job properly. But it's nobody's favorite book. I've yet to meet the person who says, oh, I just love reading from Leviticus. It's, it's not, not a favorite book because it's rather boring to read. You see, we read through Genesis and Exodus and they're full of stories, adventure stories, human interest stories, stories about people that we can identify with. And we really enjoy getting into those stories. And then we come to Leviticus and there are virtually no stories but lots of detailed instructions. And after a while, it starts to feel a bit tedious. And it's also very unfamiliar. There are lots of gruesome animal sacrifices described. It's 3,000 years and 2,000 miles from modern Britain in terms of its culture. And for that reason, it seems irrelevant to us. So, quite rightly, a lot of people ask the question, why bother? Why bother to read this book, Leviticus? Well, it's in the Bible, so it's God's Word. That means it must be important, it must be worth listening to. An actual fact... Leviticus has got more direct speech from God than any other book in the Bible. In fact, I think if you added up the direct speech from all of the other Old Testament books, it is fewer than the number of direct speech statements that God makes in Leviticus. Extraordinary, isn't it? If any book in the Bible can claim to be the Word of God, it is This book Leviticus and then there's another very important thing we should study the priests manual because you and I are called as Christians to be priests look at 1 Peter 2 verse 9 you are a chosen people you Christians a royal priesthood a holy nation God's special possession why that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You and I are called to be priests. And the extraordinary thing is that the details of the Levitical priesthood give a picture of our priesthood in the 21st century in Britain, miles away from where Leviticus was written. There's an old adage that says, the New Testament is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. If we read the Old Testament carefully, we see all of the gospel truths underlying the stories, instructions, principles, that are taught in the Old Testament. It's all concealed, because until you get to the New Testament and see what God did in sending Jesus, they're only pictures, they're only ideas. But then when you get to the New Testament, and you look at what Jesus did, you understand it so much better in the light of all of the pictures God gives us In the Old Testament that foreshadow his coming. So, what we are going to do as we look at Leviticus is look at it through New Testament eyes, but we are not going to jump backwards and forwards from the Old Testament to the New. We're looking at Leviticus, not the New Testament, but we're looking at it through eyes that already understand what God was yet going to do. So, chapters 1 to 7 are my texts for this morning. We didn't read it all, and we're not going to look at it all in phenomenal detail, but we're going to look at it this morning under the heading, Pattern for Worship. And in a month's time, November the 5th, we're going to look at these same seven chapters under the heading, Pictures of of Jesus. The two things are very much intertwined, but I believe we do well to look at Leviticus through the context in which it was first read and understood, and then put on our New Testament eyes to see how it tells us about the person of the Lord Jesus and what he did. A pattern for worship, then. What is it that constitutes worship? Nick's already begun to address that question this morning. Here in Staines Congregational Church, we have a lot of activities, and this morning's service is part of what we refer to as our worship. But what would a priest from the time of Leviticus recognize in Staines Congregational Church as worship. Supposing he came in through the door and observed us this morning, what would he recognize? Well, not the music. Even people from 50 years ago would have difficulty understanding our music. It wouldn't be the readings, because most of the books that we read from hadn't yet been written when the Levitical priest was worshipping and leading worship in his day. He probably wouldn't even recognize the prayers. You see, our prayers initiate a conversation with God. And they do so on rather familiar terms. And quite rightly so, there's nothing wrong with that. But the Levitical priest would see prayer as something awesome something formal, something which is much more to do with listening to what God says and responding to it than initiating requests. What would the priest actually recognize as worship? Probably the thing that he would recognize most readily is the thing that we treat probably most casually in our worship the offering. You see, the whole of these first seven chapters of Leviticus are about how you can bring something to God, how you can make an offering to God. What constitutes worship? Well, the Hebrew word, Hawah, means to bow down. It speaks of awesome fear. The English word comes from the Anglo-Saxon worthkeeper, which means to ascribe worth or value to someone or something. That Anglo-Saxon word became worthship, which was abbreviated to the modern word worship. How do you ascribe worth or value to someone or something? Answer, we give. We spend time with people and spend time on things that we value. When Ruby and I were in Chad, our African friends had a saying, which they repeated quite often, that you Europeans have the watches, but we Africans have the time. Mm -hmm. What they meant was that Europeans value punctuality more than anything else in relation to time. But for Africans, the important thing is the length of time that you spend with someone. If you cut short a conversation because, oh dear, I've got an appointment in five minutes, that is a gross insult because it means you don't value the conversation that you're having with this person. You value more the appointment that you're going away to. So, spending time. We also pay attention. If we don't pay attention to something, it means we don't really value it. If we don't pay attention to someone, we're ignoring them and we are not ascribing value to them. We also talk about paying respects, paying tribute. All of these words, paying, spending, they relate to giving. That's how we ascribe value, by giving ourselves to something. But how do we apply this to God God made the heavens. He flung stars into space. He is so great. He created a universe that if you and I were to travel at one billion times the speed of light, we would still not traverse the whole universe in our lifetime. That's so big. And God made it. And what's more, he engineered the particles in the atoms that make up this massive universe. Particles so small that you and I can't possibly see them, can't possibly be aware of them other than as a model, a concept in our theoretical thinking. This God is so great and has such an attention to detail and what's more, he is so perfect that he cannot bear evil, He cannot bear selfishness. He cannot bear untruth. He is so holy that you and I can't even begin to think about entering his presence. So what can we offer such a God? How can we make an offering to a God like this? Well, that's exactly the problem that Leviticus is there to answer. And it's not answered by the writer of Leviticus, Moses. It's answered by God himself. You see, right at the beginning of Leviticus, it says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Direct speech. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord. Bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. God himself is defining how and what we are to bring as an offering. So, we are to bring either our prize bull. it has to be an animal without defect, or it's our prize ram, from the flock, an animal without defect, as a burnt offering. How does this work? You're to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You're to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Just pause for a minute and think of coming through the doors on Sunday morning with your young bull. Have you ever been close to a young bull? It's a scary experience in itself. But you are to bring that bull to the altar and you're to lay your hand on its head between the horns. You lay your hand on its head, and then you take a knife, and you slit the jugular vein so that the blood flows out, and the priest will catch the blood in a bowl. And as the animal sinks to its knees and dies through loss of blood, the priest will take the blood and splash it on the sides of the altar. So, pretty horrible sight, isn't it? But that's not the end of the story. You see, you are to skin the burnt offering, not the priest, you. You've got to skin this young bull. You're to cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest are to put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And then Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. And you, you're to wash the internal organs and the legs with water. And the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing To the Lord. So you bring your prize bull or your prize ram. You slaughter it. You dismember it. You wash the entrails. And the priest places it on the altar. And it is consumed in total. What is this about? What does this do? It's all about one word. Atonement. When you place your hand on the head of this bull, the Lord says, this bull will be accepted on your behalf for your atonement. Now, my Bible dictionary uh, has got a beautifully helpful phrase at the beginning, of the entry on atonement. It says, Atonement is a very complex theological concept and very hard to understand. I think, actually, it's not all that hard to understand. It is very complex and there are lots and lots of different things we could say about it, but we're not going to go into that this morning. I want us to think about atonement as reconciliation. You see, the word atonement is at one meant? It means more than reconciliation. Reconciliation is purely the repairing of a broken relationship. Atonement is making one. Unity. It is something which wipes the slate completely clean, purges away every speck of dirt, so that whatever hindered the relationship is removed. And now the relationship can be stronger, better, cleaner, warmer than ever it was before. It is as though the two parties are at one. You and I are being given this privilege of being made at one with the Almighty Creator of the universe. What an extraordinary thought. And the people who read Leviticus or who heard Moses speaking from the tent of meeting, the words that God had given him, would have been joyful, delighted at the thought that by doing this one thing, bringing their bull, slaughtering it in front of the altar, would give them the privilege of being at one with God. But the way of atonement is very costly. The young bull, the most expensive animal in the herd, it's deeply unpleasant, slaughtering and butchering. It's very time-consuming. It would take all day to do the slaughtering, skinning, butchering, washing of the entrails and then burning the carcass. It's a heavy personal involvement. You're doing this. And frankly, as I've tried to think my way through this process, and imagining doing that, I shudder from, I shrink from it. It it horrifies me. I've never been to a slaughterhouse. I've seen animals slaughtered in Africa, and it's not pleasant. But to slaughter an animal myself, would I really, really want to do that? It's, it's a costly way of atonement. What does all this teach us? Well, the first thing is, it teaches us that the issue of our separation from God is not a trivial matter. It's very easy to imagine God as a benevolent grandfather looking down on his children, smiling and saying, oh, it doesn't really matter that you told a lie. It doesn't really matter that you're in a bad relationship with uh, so-and-so. It doesn't really matter that you actually uh, fiddled your tax return. It doesn't matter. But it isn't like that. God is a holy God. He is so holy that all of these things offend him profoundly. Oh, they are so horrible They require the blood to be spilled. You should be exterminated for those things. I should be exterminated for the things that I've done. The issue of our separation from God is not a trivial matter. But God doesn't stand aloof from us. He provides a way for us to be reconciled, to be made at one with him. An extraordinary statement to be made at one with Almighty God. Albeit, the way is very, very costly. And when God put it to the people who read Leviticus, they were the ones who were to pay the price. They were to bring their ball. They were to do all this dirty work. And they were the ones that benefited. Well, this happened twice a day in ancient Israel. Morning and evening, there was a sacrifice on behalf of the nation. And for individuals, when uh, a particular confession was made, it should be repeated on behalf of the individual. The pattern for worship has to begin here. Begins with atonement. At this point, I'm sorely tempted to leap forward into the New Testament and start explaining how this picture points us towards Jesus and what he did. But I want to resist that temptation. In a month's time, that's all we will be doing through the sermon. But this morning, we're looking at Leviticus, and the atonement is symbolized by that burnt offering. And then, worship moves into thanksgiving, the grain or cereal offering of Leviticus chapter 2. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour, they to pour olive oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priest's. The priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. So you bring grain, fine flour, mixed with olive oil, and there is a portion of incense along with it. Later in chapter 2, we read that you can actually bring your grain offing in a different way if you want to. You can bake it as bread in the oven, so long as you bake it without yeast. You can bake it as wafers on the griddle, so long as you make it without yeast. Yeast. You bring your grain offering in the same way, whatever form it takes. It must be made of fine flour, olive oil, incense, and then almost like a, a kind of P.S. at the end of the chapter, it says, and don't forget to put the salt in with your grain offering. The salt, never leave the salt of the covenant out of your offering. Why is that? Salt is a preservative and it was used very widely by the Israelites to preserve food. And so God used salt as the symbol of the covenant which he made to preserve our lives. You see, when he offered atonement, that was drawing up an agreement with the people. You do this, bring your bull, sacrifice him, And I will take that as an atonement for your sin. And that's what the salt symbolizes. As you bring your thanksgiving, your grain, your flour, your uh, bread, your wafers, they must contain the covenant. But there must be no yeast. Yeast is a symbol of sin. Yeast permeates everything that it contacts. Yeast puffs up, bubbles up. Yeast corrupts. And you must put no honey with your offering. Honey is a symbol of comfort, relaxation and pleasure. When you bring an offering to the Lord, it mustn't be just a casual thing. This is something serious that you must be doing. Finally, in chapter 2, we read that if it's an offering of the first fruits, you're to take the grain, crush it, and roast it, and bring that crushed and roasted grain. Again, there's wonderful symbolism here that points us to the New Testament, but we're not going to look at that this week. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, It's a most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. And this is why the priest from Leviticus would understand our offering. We bring our offerings to the Lord. It's not a whip-round to support the expenses of the church. It's an offering brought to God. But that offering pays the salaries of our church staff pays for the maintenance of our church building, pays for our missionaries who do God's work overseas on our behalf. Just as the grain offering, the thanksgiving that was brought to the Lord, a symbol was burned to prove that this was given to God, but it was the priests who benefited from the rest of the grain offering and the priest would understand all of that. What does all of this teach us? When we are restored to a right relationship with God, when we've experienced atonement, we want to give. We're grateful for all God's provision. We're grateful that he's provided a way for us to be reconciled, to be at one with him. We value all of these things So we worship, we give. Atonement, thanksgiving, the third offering is a fellowship offering. Because the result of all of this means that we have fellowship with God and with God's people. The fellowship offering of Leviticus chapter 3, again, it's an animal which is brought to sacrifice. If your offering is a fellowship offering, and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present before the Lord an animal without defect. You are to lay your hand on the head of your offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar, very much like the burnt offering, But from the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord, the internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver which you will remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is lying on the burning wood. It is a food offering an aroma pleasing to the Lord. It's just the internal organs and the fat which is burned in the fellowship offering. What happens to the rest? Well, the rest gives the priest a roast dinner. This belongs to him. And it demonstrates once again the principle of fellowship. Fellowship is restored with God and it also means fellowship with his people so the pattern of worship atonement thanksgiving fellowship there are two more offerings we'll look at them quickly the sin offering for an unintentional specific un- uh, uh, an individual's specific unintentional sin The sacrifice is graded according to the person's status and wealth, so no one is too poor to be able to offer this. A priest has to bring a young bull. A leader in the congregation has to bring a male goat. A common person can bring a female goat or lamb, and a poor person will bring a dove or a pigeon. And a very poor person brings a tenth of an ephah. That's 2.2 litres of fine flour. So these offerings are brought as a sin offering. It's not done like the burnt offering. The, the blood splashed on the altar. The priest takes the blood on his finger and puts it on the horns of the altar of incense. Very great symbolism there. The altar of incense symbolises the prayers of the people. And that is how the personal sin offering is uh, conducted. The second one is the guilt offering, which relates to a sin requiring restitution. If you have damaged your neighbor's property, or lied to him, or given a false testimony in court, you've caused your neighbor loss, you must repay any loss that you've caused plus 20% by way of restitution. And then when you've done that, you must bring a ram as a guilt offering to God. These two offerings are individual and personal, and they've got to be offered before you can bring any thanksgiving or fellowship offerings to the Lord. Why? Because, again, they are required for atonement. The rest of Leviticus is all specific rules for various offerings. And the section ends with, these then are the regulations which the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai in the desert of Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord. A pattern for worship. It's all about offerings and it begins with atonement. It moves on into thanksgiving and then, there's fellowship. If you're like me, at this point, you're feeling rather unsatisfied. You've never brought a bull to church and laid your hand on it. So where is the atonement? Well, you know the answer. We have to fast forward to the New Testament to understand it. 1 John chapter 2 The first two verses, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled all of the pictures that the atonement sacrifices present in Leviticus. He fulfilled all of that, and effectively, he paid the price. It's not us that has to bring the offering to pay for our atonement. We couldn't bring an offering big enough, but God provided the means for us to be at one with him. Full atonement has been made once and for all. We're going to sing about this, so if the music group could uh, prepare, please, and we'll be preparing for communion as well as we sing. The price is paid. Come, let us enter into all that Jesus died to make our own. What did he give us? He made us at one with Almighty God, the creator of the universe, this great and holy God. Made us at one so that we can live in thanksgiving and fellowship with him.